Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 12th edition of Digital Detectives. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Applied Discovery, an international leader in electronic discovery. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is the meet and confer, getting it right. We are pleased to welcome as our guest, Texas attorney and e-discovery expert, David Shomet, who is a partner in the law firm of De La Rosa and Shomet and a frequent speaker on e-discovery. David, we're glad to have you with us. John, I'm very glad to be here. Well, let's get started. David, who should attend a meet and confer session with opposing counsel? Well, you know, it, 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 the I'll give you the standard lawyer answer. It depends. Um, it depends on the client, the size of the client, and the sophistication of the client. But generally, you're going to need to have someone there who has some knowledge of what the framework is, what the electronic data framework is of the company, and someone who knows something about the people who are involved in the dispute in particular. Um, if you don't have those people there, and uh, if you don't have the people who have that information there, you, you run a real risk of making agreements that you won't be able to honor. On or down the road. David, what steps should you take if you do not know the answer to, to an issue that might arise uh, during the meet and confer session? Well, the first thing that you need to realize is that's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. Um, you know, uh, we as lawyers in law school, somewhere along the line, we get beaten into our head that not knowing the answer to a question means that we should bluff. And that can be a real problem down the road. Um, it, the The answer to that is that they should you should sit there and say you know what I don't know the answer to this but I think I can get the answer probably you know a lot of these meet and confers the 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 one in the federal rules is mandated to occur roughly 2 weeks before the final before the first meeting in front of the judge well it, it's not unreasonable to say you know what I don't know the answer now but before we meet with the judge I will come up with at least some information for you and if we need to hone that information after meeting with the judge, I'm willing to do that. But you shouldn't be afraid to acknowledge the fact that you don't have a complete set of information. Now, the flip of that, it means that you is 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 also true. You can't walk in and say, gee, I haven't had time to do anything. I don't know anything. That's not acceptable. But it's okay not to know everything when you go in uh, for that meet and confer session. Well, that sounds like another reason to have the, the proper people there at the meet and confer to begin with. Well, and, and you need to have done your homework ahead of time. Um, you know, I've been in plenty of these meet and confers where people take the ostrich approach, where they stick their head in the sand and they say, well, I've got these pieces of paper, but I have no idea. I've had people uh, sit across the table for me and say they have no idea what email system their client's using, whether it's Outlook or Lotus Notes or some variant group-wise or something. And, and, and increasingly judges have a shorter and shorter tolerance for that kind of, you know, just lack of, of work related to a case. Um, when I first started practicing 20 odd years ago, it was not uncommon on a Friday afternoon to have the senior partners in the law firm walk down the hall, find somebody who, you know, some young associate who wasn't smart enough to be out of the office Friday afternoon and say, Hey, I've got this initial pretrial conference on Monday. Will you cover it for me? And they'd hand you like the, you know, five pieces of paper in the file that's not going to work <laughs> anymore. You really have to do a fair amount of work before you show up. And it's in your client's best interest, frankly. Well, that's, I think, why the judges are forever saying we need to get these lawyers educated because they are tired of the ignorance. 
I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that I know all three of us on the podcast know the answer to, but we get asked this all the time. So I think it's helpful to ask you, is meet and confer a single meeting or a series of meetings? It, it's got to be, at the end of the day, a series of meetings. In fact, the exception is if you only need to have one meeting. Um, you know, back in the back in the old days, when you asked for documents to be produced, you know, your client would go to their file cabinet and pull out their entire file and give it to you. Well, and 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 you could produce from that, and then you'd be done, and then that would be the end. You know, thus ends the portion of our program, which is the data production pro- portion. Now we'll go on to oral discovery. Much more complicated these days. There's a lot of different data forms, i.e., the data could be email, could be in some dynamic database, could be off-site somewhere in a backup tape that you may need to go get. And and you won't know the answer to all of those questions at the beginning, in part because those people on the other side of the table haven't told you yet what they're looking for. And so it's really got to be a series of meetings. And that's important to realize because your clients need to understand that it's going to be a series of meetings. Um, I like to say to my clients, you can beat the rap, but you can't always beat the ride. And and <laughs> that series of meetings is part of the ride. You can't avoid that. You shouldn't avoid that because, again, it's bad. Uh, it, there are bad consequences if you do. I have a follow-up question to the question I just asked, uh, and that is a lot of attorneys ask, well, if we're going to do a series of meetings, does it matter if we ever meet in person? Can we use email? Can we use telephone conversations? Or does it have to be face-to-face every time? Okay, this this sort of gets to my, you know, uh, sadly, I was born in the 20th century, and I still value that face-to-face contact. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Um, I value it when meeting with the clients, and I value it with meeting with the other side. Um, I often say, I'll find a point in one of these meet and confers to say to the other side, if we are ever in front of the judge on an e-discovery issue, we all lose. And it is about meeting face-to-face is about developing the rapport with the other side, who, you know, frankly, you, you just as uh, you're just as likely to go after them with a knife as you would anything else. But what you need to be doing is building rapport so that you can get to what's truly important. And I understand that a lot of stuff is done by email these days, but you lose a lot of context in, in emails. Um, you know, it's funny. Everybody knows that 70% or more of communication is nonverbal, but yet this is a society in which we rely solely upon words to communicate meanings. Um, and th- there is enough that can be built up by seeing things face-to-face. And frankly, it makes you look like a better actor. You know, if you, it, what, what sounds better? Oh, Your Honor, I sent them a couple of quick emails and never responded. Or, Your Honor, we met face-to-face. I tried to explain to them what was going on. They still didn't get it. It's much better to, to take that forward step and, and meet face-to-face if you can, if the finances in the case, if the financial ca- issues at, at, at risk will allow. So, so what steps should you take if, if the other side isn't prepared for the meet and confer? Well, you know, as I, as I said, the, one, of the, um, one of the nice things in the federal system is that the initial meet and confer happens a whopping 10 days, two weeks before your first meeting with the judge. Now, do you show up at that meeting, at the meeting with the judge with motions for, to compel prepared and all that other stuff? No. But what you do is you document what you're doing. You will want to have had your own house in order, and we can talk a little bit about what that means, but you want to document what was missing at that meeting, and you can do it in such a way that you're not casting, you know, throwing the guy out uh, under, under a bus or something, but you can say, look, during this meeting, you didn't know what email server your, your company used. You didn't have a list of key players that made sense, um, and I'd like to know those things, and I'd like to know them before 
we go to the judge. And if the judge, if they don't give you that information before you go to the judge, then ask the judge how you can informally get back in front of the judge. You don't need to be filing a bunch of motions to compel with affidavits and things like that. It can be very costly and expensive. You can have a 10-minute conference with the judge, and they, hopefully, she or he will be willing to do this, 10-minute conference with the judge a couple weeks after, maybe a month after, where you can talk about how to make sure that things are moving down the road. So you've got to figure out at that early point, how can you informally get these questions in front of the judge? That helps a lot in terms of keeping the costs reasonable while also getting what you need to properly prosecute your case or defend your case. So, So before you attend the meet and confer, what steps should you take with your own client? Well, you know, I've I've hinted at this before. I'm a big fan of meeting the client and the key players face-to-face, if at all possible. Um, But at a minimum, you know, you want to walk in uh, to a meeting with the client, and maybe it's a virtual walk-in, you have them on the phone or something like that, and ask them for um, two things that are really just uh, the parallel versions of each other. You want to ask for an organizational chart and a data map. Now, this is supposed to be a practical podcast, so I will tell you, 99.5% of the time when you ask for either of those things, you'll be greeted with either stunned silence or screams of horror. (laughs) No one has these, okay? Not even the organizational chart? Even the organizational chart. But the funny thing is, people don't have organizational charts, but every person who works in that company knows who they report to. They all Mm -hmm. do but they don't have organizational charts. And the, the reason that you want that org chart is, first of all, you want to start what I call key player defense. You want to have identified your key players as best as possible and knowing that you might miss somebody. Well, one way to say two years later that you didn't know that Johnny Smith really mattered is we, I asked for a, an org chart and Johnny Smith wasn't on the org chart. And then when I had my key player interviews, when I talked to people who were on the org chart, nobody mentioned Johnny Smith. So Johnny Smith seems important now, but back then it wasn't subterfuge. It was just an accident that he just slipped through the cracks. So you got to ask about that stuff early. And then, although you may not be able to get this done before the initial meet and confer is, is, occurs, you want to start getting inventories of, the, uh, of what the key players know, who they worked for, who they're working for now, how they handle their documents, because you need that information to be prepared. And then the, the, the last thing that you, that you want is you want to make sure that that litigation hold has been sent out. Um, particularly in the plaintiff side, um, you know, there's the, the pension committee case from last year that had a lot of stuff in it. But one of the more important things that it had in it, from my point of view, is that it really started to put the onus on plaintiffs of when the litigation hold needs to go out. You know, arguably on the defense side, you could say, well, we didn't know that this lawsuit was going to happen until we got the lawsuit in hand. Okay, not always defensible, but it's plausible. You know, that might work. Plaintiffs, that doesn't work. You knew before you filed the lawsuit that you're going to file a lawsuit. You might have known as early as when you hired the lawyers, but you might have even known before that. And so that litigation hold really, technically, there might be cases where it needs to go out even before you hired a lawyer. And that is something that your clients need to be thinking about. Now, you're going to be crucified for doing it before you, um, before you hired a lawyer? Probably not, unless you're a really sophisticated client. But still, you need to be thinking in those terms and already be prepared to defend your choice of when the litigation hold went out, even before you get into any significant litigation. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, Applied Discovery. Applied Discovery. 
a global leader in complex litigation preparation and management, combines subject matter expertise and innovative e-discovery technology in a complete and proven process. From litigation readiness to collection, analytics, processing, document review, and production services, we manage your entire process with dedicated project managers to ensure quality and workflow efficiency. With our team, including former practicing attorneys and technology experts, Applied Discovery can help you successfully navigate the challenges of complex discovery. Discover Applied Discovery today at AppliedDiscovery.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to Texas attorney David Chomet about the meet and confer, getting it right. So David, what, what topics should you absolutely cover in the, in the meet and confer? Well, well, luckily, Rule 26, whether it, which is the federal rule, of course, and there might be a different applicable rule depending on what state, court, or whatever court you're in. Um, rule 26 lays out a lot of those things. Um, some of the more important things that you need to at least raise as a topic, and, and notice I say raise but not necessarily resolve, um, are things like the form of production that you're going to be using, um, how you're going to handle privileged documents, not only handle them, but also handle, and we don't like to talk about this, but the inadvertent production of privileged documents um, and what you can, what steps you can take to protect yourself. And that's a lot of the stuff that, ha- that that's in Rule 502 of the evidence rules that was enacted back in, I guess it was 08 or so. Um, inaccessibility. A lot of people, um, you know, it's sort of uh, lawyering 102, you know, the second half of the first year, that you learn that when you respond to a discovery request, every discovery request, even if it's like state your name, is over unduly burdensome and overly broad. Um, well, you can say that all you want. You've got to put some meat on those bones. And, and when you are covering topics at the meet and confer, you should begin to lay the groundwork if you truly believe that stuff is going to be inaccessible as that word is used in the federal rules. In other words, it's too expensive either in terms of time or cost to get to that information. You've got to do more than just say that it is, but you've got to start talking about how it is so costly and what the costs associated are, not only in terms of time, but in terms of money. And then I like to go to the uh, meet and confers with my list of key players. And, you know, uh, I view this as a collaborative process at the end of the day, because what we're here to fight about is the substance of the case. We're not here to fight about who the key players are. Somebody, uh, so I like to come with a list of key players, and I'll put them on the table. I'll say, these are the people who I'm going to start my my um, discovery process with. You know, it's it's Jane, Jimmy, Fred, and Martha, and they all work in the marketing department. Those are the people who I think you should be most interested in, and I think that that makes sense. If you have other people you want to add, you need to tell me. Well, the other side's going to say, well, they may say a couple. There's two really pat answers that come out. One, that's my work product, which is a funny answer because you're going to have to tell me anyway. Um, and two, I don't know who runs your company. Um, which is a better answer, but not a perfect one. Regardless of whether they have a good answer to that, I want to have invited them to participate in key players because that way I don't look like a bad actor when things go wrong. Inevitably, things will, we have to plan for things to go wrong. If you can show that you made a good faith effort and tried to work collaboratively, but things still went wrong, you're in a much better place. The last thing that I would be sure to discuss is search techniques, how you're going to study things, how you're going to 
pull the information out, whether that's keywords or some um, artificial intelligence way of, of sucking things out. You want to start having those sort of discussions. Um, and potentially, depending on the opposing counsel, depending on the, the circumstances, you may even ask the other side to participate in the keyword search, like to have them help them prepare words based upon whatever discovery they're going to send. But again, that's a big depends, and maybe it's part of the second meet and confer, but those are some of the topics that I would try to cover during a meet and confer session. So suppose now that you've done the meet and confer process, what steps should you be considering or taking before you meet with the judge? Well, the, the, the key thing to remember, you know, a lot of people, when the new rules came out in 06, people were like, oh, wow, this is a huge burden on, on litigants, but really it's a big burden on judges. And what you need to be thinking about is how can the judge most effectively help me get the documents I need from the other side and deliver the documents that I need to deliver to the other side to prove my side of the case or you know, uh, successfully defeat their side of the case. So you need to be thinking about things like how can I get in front of the judge constructively? What will the judge want to see in terms of cost issues? How do I really develop a schedule that I can live with? Um, I like to budget a buffer of 30 to 40% in terms of time, it always takes longer for us to produce things. Um, it just it just does. And there will always be times when you're going to need to go back and add, ask for more time. I'd rather, it's easier to ask for more time if you've budgeted for more time to start with, just because you have at least a little bit, you'll be asking for hopefully less time when you go back and ask. <laughs> so you need to be thinking about scheduling issues. You need to be thinking about how to get in front of the judge in a in a informal a way for discrete issues, and you also need to be thinking about how am I going to start laying the foundation of of the cost arguments and the 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 fishing expedition arguments that I probably will be making down the road while trying to get the judge to help the litigants as a as a group move this case towards resolution. Well, you, you talked before about the some of the steps that you would take with with the clients as, as part of the meet and confer. Is there anything that attorneys should be should be telling their clients about the process itself? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. First of all, I mean, one of the hardest things about the meet and confer is it's the, really the first time you have any significant interaction with the other side. And, you know, depending on what court you're in, um, you've either just written that the other side is performing animal sacrifices or they've just written that about you. <laughs> and, and, and your client is going to have to deal with the fact that you, you as the zealous advocate – are actually being a zealous advocate by going in and saying, we need to work with the other side. We need to be collaborative, more collaborative. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go over and roll over and just say, oh, here's where the secret treasure trove of smoking guns are. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, if we are looking at litigation from a cost perspective, and every one of your clients is doing that, then it is better to be to, to pick your battles. And from the very beginning, you're going to deal with a client that says, can't we just go to the judge at that initial meeting and say, their case sucks, and then the judge say, oh yeah, you're right, case dismissed. That's what your clients are going to want from you. And you need to sort of tell them that, you know what, it's going to take a little bit longer. It's going to be intrusive. We understand that. But we're going to try to minimize the intrusion while providing the information that we are obligated to provide. But at the same time, trying to... um, take a cost-effective approach to those intrusions. And by getting that as the mindset, you know, we can focus, we can, we can become 
Qualcomm and Morgan Stanley, and you know uh, even some of the problems that ICE is having now up in the Southern District of New York. Um, you can you can become that, but if the case becomes about more about procedure and our procedures, dear client, it will not be good for anybody. And and you know you know the, the Qualcomm lawyers for a couple of years ago where they had the fight over whether there was an attorney work product or an attorney client privilege that attached to their internal discussions about how they did the collections. Those are fights I never want to be part of in any way, shape, or form. If I can help. <laughs> well, one of the things I know from reading all these sanctions cases that you really need to do is document your efforts. So, how do you best document your efforts prior to a meet and confer session? Well, you know. Sharon, that's a, it's, a, it's a really good question because a lot of people get really wrapped up in this and they spend a lot of time thinking that you need to have, you know, memos with the imprimatur of the, of the queen. You know, it, it, it's really much simpler than that. I like to say that I can't remember what I had for lunch last Thursday. I have no idea. I can't even tell you who I had lunch with last Thursday. So how can you expect me to remember two years from now when the motion to compel is filed about the collection efforts we're doing right now? How can you expect me to remember then what I'm doing now? You can't. But in any case, it's very simple to have someone either internally uh, at the company or internally at the law firm send a summary, a very quick summary email saying, on today's call, we discuss these things. We think the key players are X, Y, and Z. And you have to um, be – and the contents of that memo, as you are taking these steps, uh, there are two things to remember. One, my initial position is that those documents are absolutely covered by at least attorney-client, if not attorney-work product protection. But you want to write them as if you're going to have to not only show the judge, but show your mother and show the opposing counsel. Because between those three people, they'll keep you reasonably polite. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you're not going to be writing – what was that uh, email that somebody wrote? 20 years ago for the drug company, I don't want to spend my retirement writing checks to fat people or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly what it was. You, you don't want any of that. But if you stay objective, you'll be able to recreate what you've done before, and, and it'll be enough of a memory trigger so that when you're facing the 30B6 deposition of your IT department two years from now or six, even six months from now, you'll be able to show what steps you took. Or when the hard drive where you stored all of the executive's email files so you wouldn't lose them doesn't spin up one day, which actually happened to me in a case, you'll be able to come back and say, you know what, these are the steps that I took, so don't sanction me just because the, I had a computer failure. And you'll be much better off down the road having taken those very small steps than, um, than you would if you hadn't taken them. Interesting. So I guess a really thorny thing that, that we hear a lot from, from our clients is, is how, how would you address the issue of accessibility of the information during this, this meet and confer? Well, you know, that's another one that, you know, like the clients, they say that, you know, my clients, and I don't think there are any exceptions to this. I would say almost all of them, but I'm pretty sure there are no exceptions. They don't want to produce any documents ever because they just want to, like I said before, walk in and say, this case stinks, and the judge nods their head, and then they go home. Short of that, they want to say, this is going to cost too much money to do. Right. And then they want to go home. Well, how do you, you start accessibility with what I, and I haven't seen this written anywhere and I haven't seen it proven. This is just Chomet's axiom of, of e-discovery. And that is 90 to 95% of the documents that matter in any case are one of two things, an email or attached to an email. 
Now, I may have to change that as Generation Y gets more into the workplace. I might have to add email or text message, but generally that's true. The good news is most e-discovery vendors are pretty proficient at dealing with what I call the Microsoft Office suite of documents. You know, the the uh, Outlook, Excel, PowerPoint, things like that. So start with that. If you have been good, you have already gotten to your clients before the lawsuit got filed and talked to them about the importance of staying out of backup tapes unless you need to get into them. So maybe you'll be able to avoid going into backup tapes, but maybe not. But even if you can't, you should be ready to say everything, if it's true, everything that you need is in an email that's on the servers. We don't need to go into the backup tapes yet unless we discover that there are some holes, like maybe there's four months where we don't have any emails something along those lines. So there begins that discussion of inaccessibility because that's the cost issue. It's not that you can't get to it. It's just too expensive to do right, it. Right. And the same thing with dynamic databases, um, although it's a little bit weaker because dynamic databases do have a unique kind of data in them. But perhaps given the case that you're in, you don't need to get in them much. And you start those discussions early by asking the other side, what do you really want? And having and documenting what they've asked you for and trying to work with your people early to give them what they're looking for. I've started saying to, um, to my clients that the way cases get resolved short of trial is by giving the other side a way to save face. Now, I know that sounds funny, but I have a couple of cases here in Texas where I've you know, been, and I won't mention the names because they're still active, but I've been kicking around the other side quite thoroughly. We want the case to go away. We, w- we could proceed to trial, and at the end of the trial, we could stand up on top of the, the, the desk or the table in the courtroom and bang our chest and talk about how we won and say, yeah, and high-five each other. Very costly. Much better for us to save a lot of that cost and give those guys a way to get out of the case easily. Well, one way to get them out of the case easily is to give them the information that they already deserve, that they're already going to get. They're smart lawyers on the other side, and show them that they have no case. Now, if they're not smart enough to get out of the case in that situation, then you know what? It is what it is. But approaching, and I'm sort of getting a little bit off of the accessibility issue, but but providing the information that this information truly isn't accessible from our point of view is um, is an important first step, and it helps you tee up the motion for protective order or the defense of the motion to compel down the road. You know, it's amazing how you can translate some of this stuff into this jazzed up language. I'm going to remember the um, uh, the Thursday lunch because I don't remember either. And I'm going to remember you standing on your desk and beating your chest, too. You remember where you were th- I, I think Thursday. there are pictures of that somewhere out there on the Internet. That's, uh, you know. <laughs> it, it's an image. It's an image. That's for sure. Oh, we're, going to have to, we're going to have to search YouTube. I can see it now. <laughs> You'll well, find thanks. actually some very interesting things if you search for me on YouTube. I'll just say that. Well, apparently I now have something to do during my lunch hour. Uh, (laughs) David, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your sharing your considerable expertise with us on this podcast. Well, Sharon and John, it's been a delight and uh, I've enjoyed talking to you today and I hope I get to do again sometime soon. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's Computer Forensics, Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. 
It's officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.